Turning Point presents the Jeremiah Study Bible, drawing on more than 40 years of study by Dr. David Jeremiah. Take your personal Bible study deeper with unique introductions to each book of the Bible. 55 full-page articles exploring the essential themes of the Christian life. 8,000 study notes with insightful and practical content, an extensive cross-reference system, and helpful sidebars that extend to topics beyond the study notes. You can also take advantage of online resources available to you at jeremiahstudybible.com. Great for individual or small group studies, this Bible is available in the New King James and New International versions in standard or large print, as well as the English Standard Version in standard print with several cover options. For more information or to order your copy, go to davidjeremiah.ca jsb. That's davidjeremiah.ca jsb. When a natural disaster rocks your world, you learn to count on God as your rock-solid refuge. What else can you learn from a disaster? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares several appropriate ways of responding to God in the wake of cataclysm. From the series, What Are You Afraid Of? Here's David to introduce the conclusion of his message, Disaster, the Fear of Natural Calamity. Well, I couldn't have chosen a subject more appropriate than this one for where we are right now. Obviously, I didn't write this particular message with COVID-19 in my head because nobody had ever heard of it before when I wrote this message. But here it is, appropriately, uh, situationally, right where we need it. What do you do when you fear natural calamity, like a pandemic? We're talking about that as we look at uh, some examples from the scripture, and we'll get back to it in a moment. First, I want to tell you about our resource for the month. This month, our resource is the book Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. If you'd like to have a copy of the book, we'd like to send it to you. We ask simply that you send a gift to Turning Point during the month of March. Do the best you can. But whatever size gift you send, please ask for the book. We'll send it to you. We need your help. We don't apologize for saying that because we don't do anything with the money except turn it around and try to help you better by providing resources and outlets for our radio and television program. In fact, we uh, we have seen some incredible things happen just in recent months. And God has opened some doors for us we never dreamed. As many of you know, we are now the first religious program of any kind to air on the History Channel And we're not on the History Channel on the weekend. We're on there every single day at 6.30 in the morning. Almost anywhere in this country, you can get the History Channel. And that means you can get Turning Point's daily release wherever you live. So many more things to tell you about. But right now, let's get started with the second half of this lesson, Disaster, the Fear of Natural Calamity. When disasters happen... How should we think about God? Well, let me let God answer that for himself, right out of the scripture. From Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, listen to these words. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. 
One reason we fear disasters is that their occurrence makes it seem that God is not in control. That somehow things have slipped out of his grasp. And at such times we must remember that a single thread in the grand tapestry of God's major weaving cannot be comprehended by someone like you or me. Our view is way too limited to perceive any ultimate meaning in a calamity. How our present suffering, for instance, fits into the overall purpose and plan of God. Yet, as Paul tells us, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Like every other part of this very difficult subject we're talking about, this verse is easy to confuse in its meaning, so listen carefully. As James Montgomery Boyce tells us, Paul is not saying that evil things are good. The text does not teach that sickness and suffering and persecution and grief or any other such thing is itself good. On the contrary, these things are evil. Hatred is not love. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. The world is filled with evil. But what the text teaches is that God uses these things, evil as they are, to affect his own good purposes for his people. God brings good out of evil. God used the work of Satan to bring Job to great confidence in God. And here's the ultimate illustration. God used the crucifixion of a perfect Christ for wonderful purposes. In God's wise and powerful hands, evil events are used by God as tools to work toward good things. And the clue in Romans 8 is in the ordering of the words. Listen to how this reads in the Greek text. We know that for those who love God, he is working. He's working. When everything's upside down and you can't figure it out, you can know one thing. God's working. He's at work. And you know the word all things work together in that text is the word from the Greek language from which we get our word synergism. God is synergistically working all things. And synergism is a word that means a lot of different elements that are a part of something that when you put them together, they become greater than the independent value of each of the parts. And sometimes they become something totally different than what the parts would dictate they might become. The Bible says that when things happen in our lives and we don't know what's going on and we can't figure it out and we're looking around thinking, what was that? God is working. We don't know what he's doing. We may not find out in this life, but you can be sure of it. He is working. He is working. He is ceaselessly, energetically, purposefully active in our behalf. He is involved. He is busy creating something greater than the disaster could ever be. That's what I know about disaster and God. It's not everything I wish I knew, not everything that answers all my questions, but these points of light help me comprehend what I should think about when disaster happens. Now, let me turn the page as we come around the circle here. We've talked about disasters and the responsibilities of God now I want to talk about natural disasters and the responsibilities of man. In the midst of pain and grief, how should we respond? 
What does a disaster say to me? What does it say to you? When we see these things happening around our world, what do these disasters say? Well, we can pick up some clues from the Scripture if we look carefully. First thing that disaster should do is teach us to repent of our sin. In the book of Luke, in the 13th chapter, there's a story, and Jesus is talking, and he's, he's talking to his disciples, and he's saying to them, I want to ask you a question. You know these people that were killed when Pilate did something, and a bunch of innocent people were killed? And, and they, yeah. And you remember when the Tower of Salem fell, and a bunch of innocent people were killed, and 18 people, I think, were killed when the tower fell? Jesus then asked him the question, and he said this, were the people who were killed more sinful than the people who survived? In other words, did the tower fall and did Pilate kill all those people because they were more sinful than the people who survived? And then Jesus answered his own question. He said, no, no, that's not true. But then he went on to say, we all perish unless we repent. In other words, he said, quit arguing about what happened and ask yourself this question. If I had been the result of that accident, would I be okay today? Am I ready to meet God? Have I repented? That's what he said we should learn from disasters. I know when you read about people losing their lives in fires and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis, do you ever wonder when you hear about them if they were prepared to meet their God? Does the question cause you ever to examine your own readiness? I mean, God uses disasters and tragedies to accomplish his perfect will in us and through us, and sometimes he uses tragedies to bring us to himself in the first place. Sometimes God uses difficulties to bring us to Christ. He may be working on some of you today just like that. Disasters drive some people away from God, but they drive some people toward God. So disasters teach us to repent of our sin, and they also teach us to reflect on God's goodness. You say, how can a disaster help you reflect on God's goodness? Hang with me here. When I watch reports of the natural disasters as they are instantaneously delivered to us by the media, my first thoughts are the many lives lost and the many families torn apart but I have also found myself experiencing a sense of gratitude that my family and people I know were not touched by these events. And I have to tell you, sometimes I feel guilty about that. Sometimes I think, well, that's not right. I shouldn't feel good about that. But I have come to understand that it is proper to be grateful that I have been saved even while I mourn for those who have been lost. If we wait until there are no losses before we are grateful to God for what he does for us, we will never be grateful one minute in our lives. And sometimes when you see the possibility of tragedy and disaster and tsunamis and hurricanes and floods and all of that, and you realize, that didn't touch me. That didn't touch my family. It didn't touch my kids. It didn't touch the people I love around me. It didn't touch the people in the church I pastor. It's okay for you to give praise to the Lord for that and to thank him for his grace and goodness that the disaster did not come upon you. God's blessings abound, my friends, and they are the norm. And it's proper to be grateful for them at all times, regardless of what the circumstances might be. 
Number three, disasters teach us to respond to the hurting. Listen carefully. When disasters happen, we should not be so concerned about the answers as to why. We should be asking God, how can we help? I need to tell you that in the disasters that have dotted our landscape here in America over the last several years, were it not for Christians intervening in Katrina, even in Haiti and other places, the disasters would have had a far more tragic impact. You ask the people in New Orleans, you ask the people in Haiti, you ask the people around the world, where has the help come from? And they will tell you in one breath, it has come from the people of God. It has come from organizations like Franklin Graham Leeds, Samaritan's Purse, where they just pick up everything and send trucks and people and volunteers, and they go in and they minister to those who are hurting. When someone turns to us and says to us, why? We should say at that moment, I'd love to sit down with you over coffee and help you work out those questions, but right now, I'm here to help you. What can I do to make your load lighter? Surely, one of the things that should happen when disaster happens is we should reach out to the hurting. If the body of Christ doesn't do that, then pray tell who will. (laughs) Number four, disasters teach us to remember God's promise. God has given us a spectacular, all-encompassing promise that provides the ultimate cure for our fear of disaster. I want to read it to you and then make a few comments about it. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Disasters remind us that God never intended for this world to be our final home. In fact, these disasters put within us a hunger and a longing for a place where there are no disasters, where there is no death, where pain and suffering and crying is a matter of history, not a present experience. It's like the old spiritual that we used to sing says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The calamities we experience are only temporary phenomena. Each disaster reminds us that a disaster-free eternity awaits us, and it inspires our heart to long for it. Disasters teach us to remember God's promise. And finally, disasters teach us to rely on God's presence and his power. We begin this message by telling the story of Job. Job got through that. It was, you know, if you read the book, it's a long, arduous process. But along the way, Job has his moments of strength and power. Along the way, Job can cry out in victory like he does in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Later on in the 19th chapter of Job, we hear him speaking these words, 
I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And finally, you get all the way to the end of the book of Job in the 42nd chapter. Job says this, I have heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job said, before all these things happened to me, I could hear you, God, but when these things happen to me, now I can see you. How many of you know that often when you go through difficult times and times of suffering and pressure, you have a view of God you could never have had before? He draws close to you. You don't just know about him, now you know him. He becomes your present helper in the midst of the distress. And out of it, you grow to be somebody you couldn't have been without it. All of us know that. We're shaking our heads up and down. Several years ago, Don and I were reminded of an example of this message. When we were visiting Israel, we were in Jerusalem. I need to tell you, we happened to make a serious mistake if you're a bread lover. Don't go to Israel during the Passover because there ain't no bread in Israel during the Passover. And, you know, I don't eat bread now, but back then I used to love bread. And I went for about five days without any bread. And I said, man, is there any place in this city that's got bread? And my friend Steve Dick said, yeah, there's an American restaurant called the American Colony Hotel Restaurant. Let's go over there to eat. So we did, and we got there to lunch, and we sat down to eat, and we were getting settled and kind of looking at the menu, and the maitre d' came in and handed us all a small brochure that told the story of the hotel and its restaurant. I was shocked to discover that the hotel we were eating belonged to the family of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford is the man who wrote the words to my favorite gospel hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I've often told the story of how that song was written, but when I read the brochure that they handed me, it was filled with facts I had never before heard. So I thought I would tell you that story in conclusion today. In 1871, Horatio Spafford lived in the Lakeview suburb of Chicago. He was a young lawyer and his wife, Anna, and he had four little girls. In October of that year, the whole center of the city of Chicago was devastated by a fire. No one knew who started it, but it killed hundreds of people and destroyed whole sections of the city. All across town, people were wandering homeless and hungry, and the Spaffords were deeply involved in doing what they could do to help families in distress. But it was no short-term ministry. And two years later, after living like that every day, they were totally exhausted from their work and so they planned to go to Europe for a time of vacation and rest. At the last minute, business kept Horatio in town, but he took his wife, Anna, and the four girls to the ship. They boarded and they left harbor. Late one night during the voyage, another ship rammed into theirs, and their ship sunk within 20 minutes. Only 47 people were rescued from the ship. Anna was pulled from the water unconscious. She'd been found floating on a piece of debris. But the four Spafford girls all perished and died. Anna got to the shore. She sent a telegram from Paris to her husband. Here was 
the telegram, saved alone, what should I do? She remarked to another passenger that God had given her four daughters and he had taken them away and that perhaps someday she would understand why. Horatio was on his way to find his wife and bring her home and the ship's path on which he was traveling crossed the very point where his daughters had been lost. The captain called him to his cabin and told him so and Horatio deeply moved found a piece of paper from the hotel in which he had stayed before the voyage and he jotted down the words to it is well with my soul which has now become one of the world's most famous hymns. While I was at the hotel they gave me a copy of that piece of stationery. It's one of my great treasures in my study. Well, Horatio got his wife and they went home. Back in Chicago, they tried to start all over again. A son was born to them and then another beautiful daughter. Maybe the worst was over. But then another tragedy. Their four-year-old boy died of scarlet fever. Inexplicably, the family's church took the view that these tragedies were surely the punishment of a wrathful God upon this family for some unspecified sin that they had apparently committed. Horatio Spafford was an elder in the church. He had helped build this church and rather than being comforted by a healing community he and his family were asked to leave the church because they perceived them to be evil. Of all the things in that story, that's the one that just I could not comprehend. How could a church be that cruel to someone who needed them? Well, in 1881, they decided that they would leave America and begin a new life in Jerusalem. So they rented a house in the old city and their goal was to imitate the lives of first century Christians as closely as possible. And soon the family was widely known for their love and their service to the needy as well as for their devotion to the scriptures. And today the Spafford Children's Center serves Jerusalem and the West Bank by providing health care and educational support to as many as 30,000 children every year under the leadership of the Spafford's descendants. Out of the ashes of their tragedy, Almighty God raised up a work that we could not possibly comprehend. Does that take away the sorrow of the lost children? No. But it shows you that even in the midst of the most difficult things that happen, He is working. He is working. Anna and Horatio Spafford suffered these testings of their faith, but they did not blame God for their suffering. They knew he was in control of all things, and because he could not be defeated, neither could they. So their faith allowed them to learn through their testings and to use their pain to bless others and further the gospel. And God is the same God today as he was then. What happens in these tragedies, if you watch carefully and listen and look, here and there will be something that comes out of them that is for God in his glory. I do not mean to be insensitive to the hurt and loss of those who experience this, nor do I have any ability to tell you all the reasoning behind why it was allowed to happen. I do know this. We serve a good God. 
We are limited in our ability to understand his heart. But one day when we're seated around the throne, we shall ask him this question. And I'm sure his answer will be better than mine has been. Mm. I'm so glad you've joined us today. Um, Maybe you didn't particularly need this message yourself, but I know that you know somebody who does. And uh, you can share what you've heard, what you've learned. You can tell them how to get this message, uh, the audio copy of it. Uh, You can help them learn how to deal with this particular fear. Now, tomorrow, here's one that I have um, more than a little interest in because I've been through this one, and that's the fear of serious illness. Um, I don't need to say much more about that than to note that as you get older, every little ache and pain makes you wonder if you got something terrible that's going to take you out. <laughs> you say, Pastor Jeremiah, do you ever think about that? Oh, absolutely. All of us do. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that fear that can lurk in the back of your mind? And believe it or not, the Bible's got some good things to say about that. We'll talk about it tomorrow right here on Turning Point. Don't forget to get your book, Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. I want to kind of keep pushing this at the front because I want you to get it as soon as possible. Pandemic and health worries, stock market, tumbling, everything you can think of. A lot of people think they have reason to be filled with anxiety, worry, and depression. As a Christian, you don't have the right to do that. And there's a way you can overcome it. You can overcome it with the Word of God and with the Spirit of God who lives within you. We want to help you do that. And this book is one of the tools that we believe God will use to strengthen you. We have that on good report already because we've been hearing from some people who got early copies of the book and how it's helped them during this particular time. Ask for the book when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of March. It'll be on its way to you before you know it. I'll see you right back here tomorrow. Thanks again for joining us. Today's message originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. We'd love to know how Turning Point is touching your life. So please write us at Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta BC, V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's encouraging new book, Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. Stop letting fear hold you back. The book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries for instant access to our programs and resources. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, What Are You Afraid Of? Here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Thank you for your prayers and support of Turning Point. We invite you to make an even bigger impact by becoming one of our Bible Strong partners, a special group whose support of the ministry is crucial in helping Dr. David Jeremiah deliver the unchanging Word of God to an ever-changing world. Turning Point is committed to presenting sound biblical teaching all across Canada. And when you stand with us in partnership, we also commit to you to provide you with empowering resources to keep you Bible strong. When you set up your online account at davidjeremiah.ca slash Bible strong, 
you will have instant access to Dr. Jeremiah's Topical Living Library audio messages and his companion booklets, exclusive club resources, and our quarterly Influencing Your World newsletter. You can also purchase additional study guides at a 50% discount for personal or small group studies with our convenient one-click checkout. Plus, join our exclusive Facebook page. You will have special access to new audio podcasts and additional content from Dr. Jeremiah. Join with other Bible Strong partners today by committing to give $25 or more each month. Your prayers and donations are the backbone of Turning Point, keeping us Bible Strong. For more information or to join, visit our website today at davidjeremiah.ca slash Bible Strong.